and to change our mind about you, where we are on a journey together to awaken to our true identity. I'm your host, Kevin Mack, and today we're going to look at a much-neglected principle that applies not only to holy relationships, but also quite likely to even Jesus himself. In the previous episodes, we established that if we are to be restored to our God-ordained or natural state of being, we must love others with all our hearts, souls, minds, and strength. We learn that two people joining together as one are a reflection of the unity shared by God the Father with his Son. And because God is holy, the relationship of the two joined together as one is also holy and is called a holy relationship. Jesus taught this principle to his disciples in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 20. It says there, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, this is Jesus speaking, there I am in the midst of them. What Jesus is really saying here is that God is present in any relationship where returning to our natural, that is, God-created, state of being is the goal. That goal is, of course, stated in Genesis 2, verses 24 and 25, where male and female, husband and wife, are two, and that those two are to become one. A Course in Miracles elaborates on this same principle while using the story of Noah's Ark as an allegory. It states there in the text, chapter 20, section 4, Paragraph 6 in verses 5 through 7. The ark of peace is entered two by two. Yet the beginning of another world goes with them. Each holy relationship must enter here to learn its special function in the Holy Spirit's plan. Now that it shares his purpose. And as this purpose is fulfilled... A new world rises in which sin can enter not, and where the Son of God can enter without fear, and where he rests a while to forget imprisonment and to remember freedom. Now let's take a closer look at what was written here. The Ark of Peace is entered two by two. This phrase, of course, harkens back to the story of Noah's Ark where God says to Noah in Genesis 6 and verses 18 and 19. God is speaking to Noah and he says to him, But with thee, now this word thee, of course, the Old English, it means you. And the translators here, I think, mean it to be singular, God speaking to Noah. But you can also be applied to pairs, to groups, to two or more that are treated as one. And we need to think here in this context, because as we shall see, not just Noah is involved in this discussion uh, with God. 
But with thee will I establish my covenant, God says. And a covenant is being joined together in an agreement with God. This elucidates the principle of oneness that's applied to covenants. But with you will I establish my covenant, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, and your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Now, God enters into a covenant here with holy relationships. Noah and his wife, his sons and each of their wives. So God enters or works within relationships whose goal is shared life. Verse 19, And of every living thing of all flesh, Two of every sort shall you bring into the ark to keep them alive with you. This phrase here, to keep them alive, is a symbol for eternal spiritual life. They shall be male and female. Now, the joining of male and female through intercourse is how physical life is sustained. We know that. Yet the physical here is merely a type of the spiritual. In the spiritual context, male and female does not refer to gender. They refer to aspects of God's nature. It is these aspects of God's nature that holy relationships are created to reflect. In other words, they are the seed through which eternal life is restored back to us. So now here's the question. Why did they all enter the ark? Well, as the story goes, uh, so that they would not be destroyed by the great flood to come upon the earth. Rather, instead, they would remain alive and be the founders of a new world after the flood waters had subsided. That's what a course in miracle means by the phrase, yet the beginning of another world goes with them. That phrase is symbolic of the new world. Those engaged in holy relationships are destined to experience. So as the holy relationships in the story of Noah's Ark were founders of a new world, so also is the destiny of all holy relationships even today. However, each holy relationship has a specific function in the Holy Spirit's plan. And even though the functions may vary among those different relationships, the outcome for all of them is the same. Enjoyment of a new world where only unconditional love is practiced and where we experience the birth of new and true freedom. My friends, our world teaches us that freedom is found in independence, doesn't it? But that's not so. On the contrary, what you find through independence is loneliness. And today, we have an epidemic of loneliness in the Western world. 
In truth, freedom is found only through holy relationships. Yet there's a question here that comes to mind, and perhaps for you as well. Jesus is referred to in the New Testament as the author of eternal salvation, Hebrews 5 and verse 9. In multiple places in the Gospels, his disciples are commanded to follow him. He said this, of course, because he came to teach people how to experience the fullness of life, as it says in John 10 and verse 10. Well, if all that's true, and as A Course in Miracles teaches, the ark of salvation is entered two by two, why is it that in the Gospels, Jesus is portrayed as being single, joined only as one with God the Father, as it says in John 10 and verse 30, and not to any other human being. Was he truly one of us? Yes, there indeed was a historical Jesus. Yes, he was a human being. Yet if he was one of us, is this a case of don't do as I do, but do as I say? Not likely. Such a condition is totally divergent from the character of Jesus otherwise portrayed in the Gospels. What is implied in the Gospels, then, is that Jesus was both single and a once-in-eternity type of human being, both God and man at the same time, something that none of us as sinners could ever be. But if that's the case, then is he truly one of us? Secondly, wouldn't that make him as a teacher one of the greatest taunters to ever confront humanity, as Oswald Chambers said, commanding his disciples to accomplish what is impossible for them to achieve? Recall what he commissioned them to do. Let's go to Matthew chapter 10 and verse 1, where Jesus says, or where it says here, Jesus called his disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are, of course, the original twelve apostles to whom Jesus is giving this commission here. According to Mark chapter 6 and verse 7, the twelve are being sent out here two by two, confirming the point made in A Course in Miracles and by Jesus himself that God works through relationships. What specifically were the works of God these pair, six pairs of, of apostles were sent out by Jesus to perform? Let's go to verses 7 and 8. In verse uh, of Matthew chapter 10. As you go, proclaim this message, Jesus tells them. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. They're doing the very same things that Jesus himself did. Yet some may say here, yeah, but that was because they were the apostles commissioned to do such things. Yet did this commission to do such things apply only to the apostles? Let's 
turn to Luke chapter 10 in verse 1 and see what it says there. It says there, After this the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. What did Jesus command these 36 pairs of disciples to do? Verses 8 and 9 of Luke 10. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near you. And what did these 36 pairs of disciples that Jesus sent out report back to him upon their return? The 72 returned with joy and said, this is Luke 10 and verse 17, the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Now, upon hearing this report, how did Jesus reply? In verses 19 and 20, he said of Luke 10, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Remember now, these are ordinary disciples like you and I he's speaking to here. Verse 20, However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So the authority... To do the works Jesus did were not only given to the apostles, but to ordinary disciples in relationship, symbolized here by the phrase two by two. Jesus, just before he was arrested, tried, and crucified, reminded his disciples of this principle once again. And he reminded them because it's important. John chapter 14 and verse 12. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. In the New Testament Gospels, Jesus' disciples in several places refer to him as rabbi teacher. Jesus was a young man who achieved the status of rabbi by the time he was 30 years old. In the Judean culture at that time, it was customary for rabbis to marry and have children in order to fulfill the ancient command to be fruitful and multiply, as it says in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28. If we combine this historical fact with the symbolism associated with the holy relationship and the principle of salvation being expressed through human relationships as identified in both the Gospels and the Course in Miracles, there are two verses here from the Gospel of Mary of Magdala, a Gnostic Gospel, that makes for some interesting discussion. Here it is in Mary. It's chapter 6 and the first two verses. Peter said to Mary, Sister, we know that the Savior loved you more than all other women. 
Tell us the words of the Savior that you remember, the things you know, which we don't, because we haven't heard them. Peter, now here, one of Jesus' principal disciples and historically considered the chief apostle following Jesus' ascension, says to Mary Magdalene, here, we know the Savior loved you more than all other women. What is Peter saying about Mary? Who is the woman that a man loves more than all other women? Could Mary Magdalene have been Jesus' wife, representing the feminine aspect of their own holy relationship? Wouldn't such a condition make Jesus more like one of us than he is portrayed in the New Testament Gospels? We will explore this probability in more detail in the next episode of Change Your Mind About You. Thank you for listening today. I'm your host, Kevin Mack, reminding you that the male and female relationship, the two becoming one, as recorded in Genesis 2, was created to be a perfect reflection of the male-female aspects of the Godhead. That is the reason God's presence is found in relationships. God is both love and holy. So love and holiness are always the characteristics of the holy relationships that reflect his presence. Jesus understood this principle which is why he trained his disciples to do the same things he did by sending them out two by two in holy relationships to preach the good news of the kingdom and to heal diseases of all sorts. If Jesus was both their teacher and a human being just like them, doesn't it make sense that he would have modeled this behavior to his disciples by his own example? Given the evidence from the Gnostic text we read earlier, a text that was long lost to humanity until discovered in the mid-20th century, were Jesus and Mary Magdalene, husband and wife, partners sharing a holy relationship? We'll examine more evidence that supports this claim in our next episode. In regard to this episode, it is my hope that it was both meaningful and informative for you. I would love to hear any comments or questions that you may have. Please direct all correspondence by email to kevinmack at changeyourmindaboutyou.com. Thank you once again for joining me today. So, until next time, take good care and be well, my friends.